0: Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of the Bad Philosopher podcast. I'm your host Dan Levesque and today we're going to be talking about space colonization and particularly talking about the colonization of Mars as per the plans of Elon Musk and SpaceX. So there's been a growing trend over the past few years I think particularly with the rise of SpaceX and the lofty promises of Elon Musk and this trend has been the trend towards this ideology of escapism from Earth. And the idea here is that of literally leaving Earth and leaving all of our earthly problems behind us and venturing out to a new planet where we can sort of start again or start from scratch, build a new society from the ground up. And how are we going to do this? How are we going to venture to some new planet and establish a city or colony there? Do we have technology to even do that? Well, that's where SpaceX comes in. So the founder and CEO of SpaceX, Elon Musk, he wants to build a self-sustaining city on Mars. And to do this, he says we'll need to send something like a million tons of equipment and resources from Earth to Mars in order to accomplish this. And this is where SpaceX's new spacecraft comes in. Musk says that their new spacecraft prototype that's in development called Starship is going to be capable of doing this, capable of sending all of the people and resources we need to Mars to build this city. And he says that for the first time in human history, we actually have this technological capability, assuming the development of Starship goes, goes according to plan, and that Starship actually lives up to the hype of what it's able to do here. And Elon thinks that we should do this as soon as we can. So in a recent presentation he gave on Starship and the progress of developing that spacecraft happened on February 10th of 2022, Musk said that it's the first point in the 4.5 billion year history of Earth that this kind of endeavor is actually possible. And he thinks that we should do this as quickly as possible because, as he says, I quote, civilization is feeling a little fragile these days. And this is why he wants to build a Mars city as soon as possible to secure the future of humanity. And here Elon also addresses the escapism ideology. He says that going to Mars is going to be cramped, dangerous, and difficult, and it's going to be a lot of hard work. And he says at the end that anyone who goes there might end up dying. That's his sales pitch for this venture, I guess. And he says that this is far from being an escape hatch, as he puts it, Mars is a fixer-upper of a planet, and then it's going to take some work to make it easy, or even possible, to live there. So Musk's ultimate goal, and I think his purpose for starting SpaceX in the first place all those years ago, it's always been to make humanity into a multi-planetary species. And to him, as he's said frequently, maybe less in recent years though, he's said that the purpose of doing this is so that we can prevent human extinction. If something goes wrong here on Earth, something causes humanity to go extinct on Earth, if we have an outpost or a city out on Mars, and that would mean that some humans are able to survive and continue on. Despite this sort of altruistic vision, I guess you could call it, this idea of having a sort of a backup planet somewhere else where, in case things do go horrifically wrong here on Earth, we we have that other planet out there where we can carry on the torch of humanity and consciousness, I guess you could say. I mean, we don't know if there's other conscious beings out there in the universe, but If we're the only ones, then it would make sense that we want to try to safeguard this future and make sure that consciousness isn't stamped out entirely if life on Earth is somehow obliterated. Despite this declared vision of going to Mars for the benefit or the preservation of our species, it does still sound a little bit like escapism. It sounds a little bit like we're trying to escape the problems of Earth to create some utopia, some paradise on another planet. To start from scratch and build something new, build something maybe a little bit more perfect than what we have here. And I can understand that urge. I mean, I have a similar urge in some ways. I like dreaming things up and I like building them. And I mean, for me, this is in the past kind of been the appeal of video games where we get to live out in some fantasy world, we get to live out this alternative reality or this fantasy reality, and we get to start and build from scratch. We start with nothing and you build something cool in this virtual world that you're playing this game in. And for myself, I mean, I really did fall for this SpaceX hype around space exploration and building a city on Mars. I mean, when I first started going really deep into this world of the space industry and space exploration back in 2013 or 2014, I felt incredibly inspired by these ideas. And actually, you could say that the origins of Bad Philosopher and this podcast started off from being inspired by that vision that SpaceX and Elon Musk were peddling back then, and still to this day. But it was also inspired by the vision that NASA had at the time of sending humans to Mars. Back in the Obama administration, that was the mission. The goal was to send human beings to Mars. NASA was officially on this journey to Mars. That was their mandate. Since then, the mandate of NASA has sort of shifted to the moon. We're going to go back to the moon and maybe stay there for longer periods of time. Which seems a little bit less inspiring to me, but nevertheless. If we're able to get off Earth and explore other worlds, I mean, that is progress in some way, right? But for me, when I looked at the state of things seven or eight years ago, there was a lot of excitement there. It seemed obvious to me that space represented this big, final frontier for humanity the frontier that was promised to us in all of these science fiction stories over decades. So back then, around 2014 or so, I started a blog, and this blog was all about science and technology, and space exploration. And I went through some pretty terrible iterations of names and directions. The first name I chose for my blog about science and technology was called StrangerThanScienceFiction.com, that's when I was more fascinated by emerging technologies in general, the promise of science, not just the promise of the space stuff, the space industry and space exploration. But over time, things really shifted for me. I started becoming obsessed with space flight and space exploration. I started reading a lot on the topic. All I really wanted to do was learn and write about space. And then I renamed that blog. Within a year or so, I renamed it to spacebounder.com. Don't ask me what that means, I don't know, it just came up and the domain name was available, so I continued on with that for a little while. And again here, after a little bit of time, maybe a year, year and a half or so of being super focused on the space exploration topic, I started to shift a little bit. Maybe I became a little bit bored or just wanted to explore other things, I was interested in other things too, but I was also again inspired by Elon Musk a little bit. When Elon talked about the idea of making humanity a multi-planetary species in order to prevent us from going extinct, that kind of woke me up. I thought to myself, well, what are the odds of humanity actually going extinct? And this is where I found the subject of existential risk, and the more I read about it, the more obvious it seemed. It seemed like there was actually a pretty good chance that we very well could go extinct. And this to me was an obvious problem. I mean, if we wanted to become this space-faring, space-exploring civilization, then obviously we can't be going extinct before we can see that vision through and reach the stars. So not long after this, I ended up changing the name of the blog again. I changed it to deathbycosmos.com. And the idea here was that I would start writing on existential risk. I came up with the name here, Death by Cosmos, because it represented to me a metaphysical sort of end goal for humanity. When I took the total tally of existential risks out there and added them all up, I thought, well, if we're really smart, we can avoid all of these risks, and that means humanity could survive for billions or trillions or longer into the future if we don't go extinct. And to me, the ultimate goal for humanity would become... This inevitable end of the universe, the idea that we don't want to go extinct before that time, what we want to do is cling to existence and cling to life and continue perpetuating our species for as long as possible till the end of time, till the point where the universe itself comes to an end. And who knows, maybe even by then we find some way to prevent that end from happening or escape the universe to a new universe or something like that. I mean, you never know what kind of things we'll come up with trillions of years in the future if we survive that long. So that, to me, was the ultimate goal of humanity. The ultimate goal that we should aspire to is extinction by the universe itself ending. I called this a death by cosmos. Not death by any catastrophe, but death by the end of everything, I guess you could say. So, Fast forward five years or so from that, and I've renamed this same blog again to badphilosopher.com. So really, if you look back at the history of posts here, you're going to see this continuum stretching all the way back to the early days in 2014 or so, when I started initially blogging about science and technology. And really, if you look at it, my focus hasn't really changed that much. I mean, I'm more focused on philosophy now, but I'm also super interested in the applications of philosophy to science and technology and to spaceflight and space colonization as well. So that was me. That was my journey to getting to where I am now with Bad Philosopher. I was inspired by Elon Musk, by technology and by space exploration. I like to create content around things that inspire me. And at some point I became inspired by the idea of Avoiding the fate of humanity going extinct, I thought the greatest good we could aspire to would be to prevent an existential catastrophe from happening. And that's where I started learning all about existential risk in a lot of depth. The focus has shifted a bit, so now with Bad Philosopher, I'm also focused on down-to-earth problems. Because I think it would be a mistake to just think that we should spend all of our time and effort focusing on avoiding bad outcomes and trying to prevent the extinction of humanity, we should also be focusing on real-world issues and figuring out how to make the world itself a better place. That's where we do need some balance here. And I am trying to balance things out here. I want to be talking a little bit about existential risk. I also want to be talking about science and technology and the future of humanity. But I want to balance that by talking about practical philosophy and how we can apply that to our daily lives because there really are a lot of ideas and topics out there that are more down to earth and that are really interesting and important to talk about and discuss. Funnily enough also, despite having this sort of brand of this grand vision and this escapism from earth, Elon Musk has also, as he's grown in wealth and success, he's also been giving some of that wealth away it seems, giving it to good causes that are here on earth. So while he does care a lot about space exploration and building a city on Mars and he cares a lot about the future of humanity, it does seem like he also really does care about the down-to-earth things too, it's just that he spends most of his time being an innovator. And I mean, let's recall too that his other major business, Tesla, is trying to revolutionize and decarbonize the auto industry, which, which in itself is probably a good thing for the planet. The Elon Musk I remember from a few years ago, back when I was inspired to start thinking about and blogging about space exploration in this grand vision, seems to have changed a little bit. Back then, he really seemed to have his eye turned towards this grand vision of a city on Mars. But maybe over time, he's become more down to earth. Maybe in the past few years, things have changed a little bit for him. And I feel the same too. For me, thinking about space and technology and the future was a little bit of escapism on my part. Back then, I didn't really understand the world very well, and instead of seeking to understand it, I sort of sought that escape, I guess you could say. Maybe this is what I also used to do with video games, you know, a decade or more ago. Now of course I still don't understand the world now, but I feel like I'm embodied in it, I'm in the thick of it, I'm trying to put more emphasis on the here and now, on making the world as it is a better place, rather than wishing I could go live on Mars away from it all. And who knows, maybe I'll change my mind one day, I mean, if living on Mars becomes a viable option, it might even be a good place to go on some sort of a retreat or something, who knows. I'm still fairly young, who knows what will happen over the next few decades. But today, with this podcast, the question I want to tackle is asking what it's actually going to take to see through this great vision of Elon Musk, this vision of building a city on Mars. How is it going to work? What will it require from us? And what are the philosophical implications here? So there are a few reasons why establishing a self-sustaining city on Mars could be both possible and a good thing for us. Firstly, Mars already has some of the things that we need to make it somewhat habitable. It's got soil and it's got water locked up in the form of ice. Though of course the soil here isn't going to be suitable for growing plants or anything off the get-go, it would need to be modified in order to actually be hospitable to organisms on Earth. And we don't yet know how to do that, assuming that it is eventually possible. In terms of raw materials, that means that everything we need is sort of there. We've got the raw materials in the soil and in the water. Of course, a big problem with Mars is that the atmosphere is almost non existent and there's no air to breathe. But in the long term, there is some possibility here of terraforming Mars to make the surface habitable for humans. This kind of thing probably isn't going to be anytime soon. I mean, we're looking on the period of centuries or millennia for us to have the technology and capability to actually see that through. The second thing to think about here is that we actually do have the technological capability to go to Mars and probably stay for a long duration. If SpaceX's Starship spacecraft delivers on its promises, then we'll have a viable spacecraft that can transport humans, equipment, and supplies from Earth to the surface of Mars at relatively affordable prices. And the cost here is just going to be a small fraction of the price of any previous missions that have delivered payloads to the surface of Mars. You know, Think the rovers and robots that we've delivered to the surface, those were extremely expensive missions. But SpaceX here is looking to bring that price down by several orders of magnitude. So it does seem like we are at the cusp of it becoming technologically feasible to establish a permanent settlement of some kind somewhere out in our solar system, either on the moon or on Mars. These are serious conversations that we're having at this stage in our civilization. The third reason this kind of venture could be a good thing is that it would give us a greater opportunity to study the past and current habitability of Mars, potentially finding fossilized life, or maybe even current life that maybe exists somewhere deep underground. Now, there is a very limited amount of things that the robots we've sent to Mars are able to do. If we want to carry out the search for life on Mars for real, then It would really help to have actual scientists and biologists there to carry out this kind of work. And if we do find something, I mean, having a human there that's able to actually investigate further is going to be extremely important. This isn't the kind of work that a robot, or at least the robots we've been sending so far, are able to carry out. And finally, this could be a good thing in that it opens up a new opportunity or a new frontier for humanity to pursue. And here we're not just talking about Mars, but space in general. Here on Earth, we don't have that anymore. We don't have any new frontiers. It's been a long time since we had something new to explore. We've summited Everest and established a permanent base in Antarctica. Both of these places are some of the least hospitable environments that one could imagine, and not really that far off from what living on Mars would be like. As someone who loves adventure and exploration and reading about past explorers and adventures, I mean... The idea that we've kind of run out of frontiers here on Earth, we haven't entirely, there are still some things we could do more of, some things we could do better, like exploring the depths of the oceans, for example. But to me, things are feeling a little bit stagnant, like we need some fresh energy to be invigorated in us, and having a goal like exploring or settling on Mars could be exactly what we need. Now, despite this exciting sort of prospect, there are some caveats here, and that's that there are some philosophical and ethical issues to consider when we're gonna be talking about exploring a world like Mars and potentially settling there. Now, the first big philosophical and ethical issue here is the possibility that life does exist on Mars somewhere. And with this, we need to consider how we can protect that life, how we can prevent ourselves from harming that environment or contaminating that environment. This is a field of study called planetary protection. And the idea here is that as a responsible civilization, we should be concerned about contamination. I mean, what if life from Earth contaminates Mars? We have some hardy microbes on Earth that are able to survive in space. And what if these microbes contaminate Mars and they spread themselves around and multiply and outcompete any native Martian life forms or microbes? In this situation, we could rapidly see Martian life, if it exists, go extinct as a result of our own actions and as a result of the spread of life that was imported there from Earth. Now, if this did happen, it wouldn't be setting the stage very well for humanity's arrival on the cosmic scene. Would we then go on to do this on every other planet that could potentially have life on it, or does have life? And if we're doing it to other forms of life on other planets, I mean... What's to stop any alien civilizations out there if they exist from doing the same to us? What if to an advanced alien civilization looking at us, we look like the microbes and they don't care what happens to us, just like we might not care if we contaminate or destroy life on other worlds in our solar system. So here I think it's important that we follow a do-no-harm principle when it comes to seeking out and studying alien life forms on other worlds if we do find them. The problem here is that there is already a cross-contamination issue with some of the rovers and robots that we've sent to Mars. We do have protocols in place to scrub them and try to remove any microbes from their surfaces before launching them off, but it's been shown that at least some microbes do survive this process, and some of them could survive the surface of Mars as well. So we might have already contaminated Mars. And the paradox here is that we have no idea if any life exists on Mars currently. To find out, we have to go there. And to go there, that means risking contamination. So we can't even say whether or not it's a place that needs to be protected where we need to think about native Martian life forms until we actually go there and discover them. And by then, maybe it's too late. So similar to this concern, there's also the small possibility of backwards contamination occurring. And this is the kind of thing that could happen if, say, we sent a sample of life from Mars and sent it to Earth. And then that sample ends up getting free and spreading all over Earth. Now, while it's most likely that Earth's more advanced life forms are going to be robust enough to outcompete any Martian microbes, it's theoretically possible that the reverse could be true that Martian microbes could dominate Earth based microbes. This could also mean that Martian microbes would be capable of making any human colonists sick, or even of preventing our plants from growing in Martian soil. And if there was any sort of backwards contamination where we would find out that Martian life is actually extremely harmful and threatening to Earth life, it would be a sort of an ironic outcome. We would go from being the colonizer of another world to becoming colonized by life from another world. And who knows what this kind of colonization might do to our biosphere. We don't know how life forms from a different planet might interact with our own. It could be catastrophic for us or for them. Another philosophical problem when it comes to Mars colonization is this problem of adopting an attitude of escapism, the idea that we're looking for an exit strategy to get ourselves off of Earth. And this becomes an ethical problem if we begin looking forward to this new planet where we can move to and colonize while ignoring the issues happening back at home on our own planet. I mean, we do have a lot of issues here on Earth to take care of, and we're not taking care of our planet as well as we could be. If we go forward and colonize Mars, then the same thing is just going to happen there, we're going to make a mess of the place. Also think of how geopolitical issues could be exacerbated by this colony on Mars or cause conflicts on this other planet too we could easily argue that humanity as a species is not mature enough to handle the task of setting up a self-sustaining city or colony on another planet. We need to fix a lot of things at home first. And how can we justify spending energy and resources and money and time on becoming space cowboys or space adventurers while there are still people here on Earth that are living in extreme poverty? That's a question that we need to consider. We also need to ask ourselves what kind of status this city on Mars or a Mars colony would have. Is Mars ultimately going to be an extension of Earth, so sort of like a colony of Earth or a colony of some nation on Earth? Is it going to be like the colonies that were established in the Americas? Or is it going to be its own self-sufficient entity, so not a colony but a city or a nation on this other planet? We might need to update our terminology here so that when talking about what we're doing on Mars, we know what we're talking about. A colony means a territory that's subject to some form of foreign rule, so if the United States built a settlement on Mars, it would be a colony of the United States. Things are a bit of a grey area here with a corporation like SpaceX. It, it can't be a colony of SpaceX because SpaceX isn't a nation but maybe SpaceX or someone going to Mars can declare themselves an independent nation that's based on Mars. And in that way, they wouldn't be a colony, they would be Martians. And anyone working at SpaceX wouldn't be citizens of Earth, they'd be citizens of Mars, maybe. I don't know how that works. And these are just some of the philosophical issues when talking about colonizing other planets and setting up a settlement on another world but we also need to consider some of the practical, real-life engineering and human problems that will come up with such a venture. So I think the biggest issue here is going to be how far away Earth and Mars are from one another. There's an extreme distance between the two. Going to Mars is going to be a journey of at least six months in one spacecraft. Now there is possibility that we can get that down to three months in the future, but that's going to require more fuel and higher speeds and more time to slow down and all of that stuff, so it becomes an engineering problem. It's much more efficient to keep it at a six-month trip or a nine-month trip even. And the distances between Earth and Mars varies a lot because we're both moving planets that are orbiting the sun, and we're orbiting the sun at different speeds. The Earth is closer to the sun, so the Earth is orbiting the sun quicker than Mars is because Mars is a little bit further out. And typically here, the planets range from being 60 million kilometers apart to up to 400 million kilometers apart over the course of a 26-month cycle. This also presents some constraints as to when we can actually send a spacecraft to Mars. Because of the way these orbital dynamics work, I mean sometimes Mars is way behind us, sometimes Mars is on the other side of the sun, sometimes Mars is ahead of us and we're catching up to it. Because of the positioning issue, we can only actually launch spacecraft to Mars for a few months out of every 26-month window. And we actually have an upcoming launch window in 2022 where it will be possible to launch a spacecraft from Earth to Mars between the months of August and November of this year. After this, the next launch window won't be opening up until late in 2024. So, this presents quite a logistical challenge to any endeavor to go and settle on Mars. To establish a city or a colony, we'll need to send all of the initial materials and equipment from Earth to Mars. But we have a very limited window in which to do so. Resupply missions will essentially be cut off in two year cycles. This is something that kind of happens with Antarctica too, where I think they're in like six months of complete darkness where no planes or supplies can be flown in, so they're kind of cut off and on their own. But six months trapped on a continent on Earth that's covered in ice and where you can actually breathe the air and step outside once in a while is a lot different from two years on a planet where you're totally cut off from your home from any supplies and you can't step outside at all. And this will mean that every 26-month cycle, for all of this time, colonists on Mars will need to have enough supplies and be self-sufficient enough to last a full two years without any resupply from Earth. If you need any parts or you're running low on food, a relief mission just isn't an option here. Also, the missions that do get launched are going to be critical. If a launch fails or the window gets missed for some reason, I mean, imagine a severe hurricane damages launch pads and prevents resupply missions from being sent, then this Mars settlement could be screwed. To be extra safe we would want to ensure we stock up like maybe retain four years worth of supplies at all times to ensure that in the case that one of these critical launch windows does get missed somehow then the colonists don't starve to death and this is going to come with additional costs and additional storage requirements on mars to maintain this kind of excessive inventory along with this extreme distance comes communications delays It can take between 5 to 25 minutes for a signal from Earth to reach Mars and vice versa. And that is a signal traveling at the speed of light. And the exact delay will depend on where Mars and Earth are in their respective orbits, how physically far away they are from one another. This means that any sort of live conference or zoom call between people on Earth and people on Mars is totally out of the question. I mean, think about how difficult it can be to run a successful Zoom call in the modern age where so many people have been working from home and teams can be spread out all along, all around the world. And even in this situation, communication is generally instant, where at most has a delay of a second or two. Now imagine that a Zoom call wasn't even a possibility because there's going to be a built-in delay of several minutes. You're not talking to someone in real time. The only option here might be to deal with everything through email or through some sort of two-way message system where messages can be delayed by almost an hour in some cases. For example, if it takes 25 minutes for an email from Mars to reach Earth when they're at their furthest distance, it'll take another 25 minutes to send the response back to Mars. And of course, allow a couple minutes here to actually type out an email in response and you get the picture. A question from someone on Mars saying something as simple as, should I press this button or that button, could take an hour to get a response from mission control saying what the answer is. The issue here is that, of course, colonists won't always have an hour to wait. They won't be able to just wait around if something is critical. On modern spacewalk missions on the International Space Station, astronauts conducting maintenance are usually being walked through the process in real time by colleagues down on Earth. Without this kind of assistance, there's a high chance they might become disoriented, or do something incorrectly, or miss some critical thing they're supposed to be doing. This is how mistakes can happen, and in the environments of space or Mars, any mistakes are likely to be deadly. So real-time communication and meetings won't be possible. And guiding Mars colonists through critical tasks from Earth won't be possible either. This means there will need to be a high level of autonomy and an overarching command structure on Mars. Mission control here will probably need to be entirely based on Mars. Lots of decisions will need to be made locally without having any consultation with Earth, and this is going to require more personnel and more equipment to support this kind of complex operation. Colonists on Mars will need to become fully self-sufficient, able to make life-or-death decisions on the fly without going through Earth-based chains of command. And they need to be able to operate mostly autonomously. This is why Musk talks about a self-sufficient city on Mars being important. It needs to be self-sufficient in terms of decision-making basically from the get-go. But it also needs to become self-sufficient in terms of materials and resources in order to ensure its long-term survival and viability. Mars can't just remain solely dependent on Earth for supplies at all times. At a minimum, Mars needs to become capable of exporting some, something of value to Earth, and that'll open up two-way trade between the two planets. And over the long term, if this dream of becoming multi-planetary and having Mars as a sort of backup planet for humanity... Mars needs to become entirely self-sufficient and able to manufacture and produce everything that they need. Otherwise, if Earth somehow does get obliterated, Mars colonists would die too because they're still reliant on Earth for materials and supplies. It would be an understatement here to say that the path towards becoming a fully self-sufficient and self-sustaining city or colony on Mars is going to be a very long and difficult one. It doesn't sound like it's something that can even be accomplished over the course of decades. It could take longer than that. So we also need to think about what could arise from such a system like this. And this is more of a long-term concern. But it's the idea that Mars could simply develop its own rules, its own laws, and its own structure of governance. At a certain point, as a result of being so far away from Earth, any self-sustaining Mars colony will want full independence to make decisions that are in the best interests of the Mars colonists rather than the Earth they left behind. And this is going to lead to an independently governed Mars with interests that are different from us here on Earth. The implications of this are astounding to imagine. For an example of how this played out, I mean, just look at the colonization of the Americas. Just look at the American Revolution. So the British maintained these colonies in the Americas and these colonies were governed by the British. But the people living in these colonies in the Americas didn't like that they were being governed by people so far away. They had their own interests that weren't being represented. And eventually this culminated in a big war, the War of Independence, where America officially became an independent nation of its own. And now if you fast forward a few hundred years, the United States is the superpower of the world and the British Empire has declined significantly. Now it's interesting to think about if something similar could play out between Earth and Mars. I mean, for example, we start out with the Mars colony that's dependent on and governed by interests back on Earth, and over time this Mars colony becomes more and more self-sufficient. The people living on Mars want to be represented properly, they want their own form of government, and Eventually, this Mars colony rises up and declares independence from Earth. Now, the question here is, how would this turn out? Would it result in some kind of a war? Would it result in the two planets going their separate ways? Or would it be a sort of a peaceful split, where Mars just becomes its own sort of nation or its own sort of government and still maintains close ties to Earth? Before we get to that point, though, there are other concerns with establishing a city or colony on Mars. Another concern is that there's going to be a lot of isolation and cramped living quarters, and how will people react to the fact that they can never go outside and take a breath of fresh air? By leaving Earth, any colonists are going to be resigned to never breathing fresh air again for as long as they remain on Mars. Sure, they can go outside in a spacesuit or a Mars suit, but this gives them limited range of motion and still keeps them isolated and cut off from the environment, keeps them isolated in this enclosed system. And maybe they'll eventually install some sort of a large dome that can mimic a more natural Earth environment, but this is going to be difficult and very costly to implement. Another consideration is the closed ecosystem in general. The physiological and psychological impacts of this could present a huge challenge. I mean, the International Space Station itself is known to develop its own sort of microbiome in space. Micromes evolve differently in this environment. And who knows how they would evolve on Mars? We we might see some instances of divergent evolution happening. And also the environment in general is an unknown here. Is Martian dust if it gets tracked in on people's spacesuits going to be dangerous to human health if it gets inhaled? Because we know that moon dust is when it comes to Martian dust, we don't know what the effects there might be, especially over long-term exposure. And there's also the problem that an enclosed system like this can always become compromised, for example by contaminants or pollutants. Living on Mars, colonists will need to be fully dependent on artificial environmental controls and recycled oxygen. To imagine what that's like, just imagine the feeling of being enclosed in a room with air conditioning blasting while outside is a scorching temperature. Now imagine that all the time, being locked into a closed room with just air conditioning. That probably wouldn't feel very good to be in. And here, health problems could also arise. I mean, the immune system can become severely compromised while living in enclosed and sterile environments for extended periods. Humans don't do well when we can never interact with the natural world we've evolved to be part of. And if these colonists develop weakened immune systems after having been cut off from Earth for so long and never encountering fresh microbes, well, then every two-year resupply mission will bring new humans and new microbes into the mix here. Now we could imagine that after enjoying two years of a relatively sterile environment, colonists on Mars being exposed to new Earth microbes could become quite ill from this exposure. And over the long haul, maybe this could even become a two-way problem. Mars and Earth might each have unique environments where pathogens could evolve differently and different pandemics could arise. And this means that we might need to impose some sort of strict quarantine measures on people traveling in either direction. And then we have some interior design problems too. I mean, how are people going to cope with living for years on end in what is essentially a laboratory environment, an entirely artificial environment? We could imagine this could become psychologically damaging over time, and space is going to be a constant issue. Every square meter is going to come up with a large cost in order to build and maintain, so any Mars city or colony is going to be incentivized to keep their habitats as small as possible. Space here will always come at a premium. It's kind of ironic actually. In space, every little bit of space matters. Every little bit of space costs a lot of money. Another problem with this journey to Mars is going to be the transit time itself. We're looking at six months or more of humans being contained within a spacecraft on this journey to Mars. And While we do have a lot of data for reference coming from studies on the impacts to astronaut health after living on the International Space Station, The results here aren't too encouraging. Astronauts that live in microgravity for extended periods of time lose a lot of bone density and muscle mass. Exercise regimes can help mitigate this, but the bone loss can't really be helped. Either way, when when they do land on Mars, they're going to be a total wreck. I mean, just look at footage of astronauts coming back to Earth from the space station. They can't even walk without assistance, and it can take them months to recover their strength. And when it comes to the Martian environment, there's another unknown here. It's that the gravity on Mars is about a third as strong as it is on Earth. This means that on Mars you would weigh a third as much. And we don't know what this long-term lesser gravity would do to human beings. Would they lose a significant amount of bone density and muscle mass in the Martian environment? And what about other health effects that might occur? And heck, maybe this isn't a problem at all. Maybe life in a third of Earth's gravity is super awesome. They definitely need to make basketball nets a lot higher, that's for sure. But the big risk here is the unknown factor. The longest amount of time anyone's ever spent in space on a single trip was something like 14 and a half months. And we do know from experiments like this of long duration spent in space in orbit around Earth that it really does impact astronaut health. But we have no idea what it would look like if someone's spending years away on a Mars mission or even living on Mars long term. And here we just really don't know what the health impacts might be. For all we know, they could be completely catastrophic. Now, the final engineering type problem here is that of radiation exposure. In space, humans get exposed to higher radiation levels than we do here on Earth. And this could also be a bit of a problem on the surface of Mars. Now there are a lot of things we can do to kind of mitigate this. For example, monitoring for solar storms, that's when the sun sends out more solar rays than normal, more radiation. And if we use some specially designed compartments that are shielded by water or something else that's dense, that shielding can help filter out dangerous radiation, so it'll minimize the amount of radiation that astronauts get exposed to unmitigated, the effects of long-term cosmic radiation exposure could be pretty bad. The International Space Station has some shielding from Earth's magnetic field, but a spacecraft transiting to Mars would not have this same protection. So we need to be very well prepared to manage this kind of problem. Once we're on Mars, the surface of Mars does help mitigate a little bit because it has some atmosphere and we would also have or I mean, we could also have extra shielding just just to help mitigate that even more. But all in all, we'll probably have to contend with the fact that humans making the journey to Mars will be exposed to additional radiation. And this could slightly raise their chances of developing a fatal cancer at some point in their lives. I think studies have shown that astronauts who go on a mission to Mars and back would develop something like a 5% additional risk of developing a fatal cancer over the course of their lives. So. There is some added background risk here, and who knows, for the people that do embark on such a mission, maybe that's a totally acceptable level of risk for them. And it is something that anyone going to Mars would need to be fully aware of. A worst-case scenario here would be if humans did get a gigantic dose of radiation exposure happening all at once in a short period of time. And here there could be some pretty extreme health and psychological impacts, so this is definitely something that needs to be avoided on any, any journey to Mars or for anyone living on Mars. And all that said, I do think this radiation issue is one of these issues that's being taken the most seriously out of all of the other problems we've sort of covered so far here. All in all, this idea of leaving Earth to colonize Mars is probably inevitable. As long as we don't go extinct at some point in the next few decades or centuries, there's a very good chance that a future resembling that of Elon Musk's Mars vision will come to fruition. But we do still need to do a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis here. Because even with the reduction in the cost of launching each kilogram to Mars being promised by Starship, even if this does turn out to be an accurate prediction, the cost of establishing a city on Mars is going to be immense. Especially when we think about a fully self-sustaining city of thousands of people, or some would say a million people, in order for Mars to become fully self-sufficient. If that connection to Earth were somehow to be cut off, I think it would take something like a million people to maintain it. It's also a very dangerous undertaking. There's a high chance of failure, or of some failures along the way. I mean, a starship could crash or malfunction. A colony could catastrophically fail, and everyone could be left stranded on Mars to die. Spaceflight is an inherently risky business and the journey to Mars is going to really up the ante here. So we do need to consider whether embarking on this mission is worthwhile. If spending all of this time and energy building habitats and cities on Mars is a worthy undertaking for humanity to pursue. To answer that, I think it comes down to what our long-term goal is. What is the long-term goal of humanity in general? And I don't just mean the next fiscal year or the next decade. When thinking about long-term futures, we should be thinking in terms of decades, at least. And for even loftier goals like colonizing Mars, thinking in terms of centuries and even millennia might make sense. So when we do think about this long-term vision of humanity, I mean, what's the point of colonizing Mars? Of establishing, as Musk says, a self-sustaining city? How does this fit into our long-term future? Now something he talks about often is this idea of making humanity a multiplanetary species so as to help us avoid human extinction sort of having a backup planet here. And Musk poses this as a simple math problem. If all humans live on one planet and something bad happens to that one planet then we probably will all die. But if we have two planets we can still lose one, and humanity can still go on to continue spreading throughout the universe and flourishing for an untold amount of time. This is an interesting argument when you consider our background level of natural existential risks, like asteroid impacts and supervolcanoes, is very low. I mean, sure, Earth is susceptible to both of those things. They're very unlikely, but definitely possible. Mars is susceptible to asteroids too, but... It doesn't have any active volcanism, so no risk of a supervolcano here as far as we can tell. So for Elon, it makes sense to sort of hedge our bets, and if we're worried about an existential catastrophe taking out life on Earth and rendering all humans extinct, then I guess you could say it kind of makes sense to have this backup planet. But one could also argue here that if we were to take the tens of billions of dollars and all of the engineering ingenuity that we're going to need to Invest to get this Mars City dream off the ground? Well, all of that money and ingenuity could go a long way towards securing Earth from both asteroids and supervolcanoes. We could greatly improve our asteroid detection capabilities and embark on some program of learning to monitor and mitigate potential supervolcanoes. As of now, practically nothing is being spent on the supervolcano problem, though there are some hypothetical ideas for being able to release pressure building up in these supervolcanoes by drilling into them. And I think this idea comes out of NASA, so it's good that NASA kind of has our backs here, even though they're supposed to be spending their time and energy on exploring space. But when talking about existential risk mitigation here, as we talked about on that three part podcast series specifically on existential risk, we're about a thousand times more likely to go extinct as a result of human actions rather than by some naturally occurring catastrophe. And given this, it's not clear how making humanity multiplanetary would necessarily mitigate against most of the risks that we face. And in a way, becoming multiplanetary might even make us more susceptible to some types of risks. First, let's take the nuclear weapons issue. I mean, nuclear war could present an existential risk to humanity. And a Mars colony might even exacerbate existing tensions and help bring about a nuclear war. I mean, who gets to decide who goes to Mars? Will some countries be benefiting here more than others? Will will anyone get to claim Mars as their own territory? It's easy to imagine here how tensions could arise between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, if the United States establishes a settlement on Mars with some of its allies and they are they all collectively decide to exclude Russia and China, this could cause a new space race to emerge. Or it could cause conflicts back on Earth over space-based resources. And in this way, a city on Mars existing at all could act as a risk multiplier when it comes to geopolitical tensions. Any nation or group of nations that owns and maintains a settlement on Mars or anywhere in space have a significant advantage over other nations that don't have this kind of capability. And even if we avoid these geopolitical issues, there's an inevitable future here where Earth and Mars do develop independent governments. Over the long term, it's highly possible that rules on Mars will need to be different than they are here on Earth, so as to prevent bad things from happening. The Mars settlement will be a lot more fragile than Earth is, and Maybe this means less liberties or rights for humans living on Mars. I mean, Mars won't be able to sustain people who aren't contributing to keep the society going. And with this, they could impose draconian laws that require people to work, or ban any sort of protests, or even slide towards authoritarianism to sort of maintain order. So here, over the long term, we could see different governance systems emerging on Mars than what we have here on Earth. And what if these two different types of systems between Earth and Mars, what if they just don't get along? What if Earth eventually becomes one united global government and Mars becomes another, and the Martians create their own weapons of mass destruction that could threaten Earth, or maybe as a deterrent against any sort of Earth based aggression? And this is just another example of where risks could be multiplied. Instead of a global nuclear war, we add the risk of interplanetary nuclear war, or worse. Now, bioterrorism and bioengineered pandemics is another risk, the risk of having some engineered pathogen that could be highly fatal to any humans that get infected with it. If someone is able to 3D print a super deadly pathogen on Earth, then they could easily send the blueprints in an email to Mars and get someone on Mars to print it off there too. So a quarantine measure here wouldn't even work. If there is a bioterrorism incident where a pathogen is released on one planet, it's very likely that that pathogen is going to find a way to be released on the other planet too. Having two planets doesn't necessarily reduce our risk here. And the artificial intelligence problem is a whole other issue. Assuming, assuming that Mars and Earth retain some integrated internet system, any AI that takes over Earth would be able to take over Mars too. I mean, that's the price you pay for having all of this integration. And having two planets could also multiply the risk. I mean, say we have defensive measures in place to prevent a hostile takeover, but say Earth has better defensive measures than Mars does, or vice versa. Say one planet is able to prevent a hostile AI from emerging and taking over their systems, but the other planet isn't. So if one planet fends off a hostile AI takeover, but the other planet gets taken over by a hostile AI, well, the planet that does fall to a hostile AI takeover, that AI is going to be able to utilize that planet's resources and improve itself quickly and become an existential threat to the other planet that it failed to take over. The problem is that all it really takes here is one hostile superintelligent AI to emerge and to take over one planet, and then all of humanity is likely doomed. And each subsequent planet we colonize might itself represent an additional chance of this happening, especially because, as distances increase here, each planet might be operating its research and development semi-autonomously. To me, there's absolutely no reason to think that we'd be less likely to face an existential catastrophe by having a colony on Mars. It seems that most risks have a high likelihood of spilling over, and some might even become more likely to happen by having humans inhabiting multiple planets. And inherently, a colony on Mars is going to be much more fragile and possibly much more susceptible to an existential risk occurring than our Earth-based civilization. So if we're hedging our bets here by having a backup planet, We should know that it's actually more likely that our backup planet would experience an existential catastrophe than our original planet is. Now, with all of that said, putting a human settlement on Mars is certainly on the roadmap for humanity's long term future. At some point, we do need to expand off of Earth. Earth will not remain inhabitable forever, no matter how well we take care of it. Eventually, this sun will scorch the Earth and render it uninhabitable. So, in the long term, it's Undoubtable that our future resides in other solar systems and on other planets. That is, if we are able to survive and avoid an existential risk from occurring at all. And in this roadmap of expansion, Mars is going to be among the first steps here. Mars will be a proving ground for what humanity is capable of when it comes to expanding into the cosmos. It's a necessary step before we ever plan on leaving our solar system and colonizing other stars. First, we need to figure out how to do it with a planet like Mars. And something we do need to consider in moving forward is the legal status of Mars. I mean, does it belong to humans? Or does it belong to any Martians that might inhabit it? Or does it get a special status like Antarctica? The main document we have to go on here is this 1967 Outer Space Treaty that hasn't been updated since it was signed into international law over 50 years ago. And this treaty was based on the Antarctic Treaty from 1959 where everyone mutually agreed that Antarctica could not be claimed by any single nation as their territory, and this basically established the entire continent of, as this zone of peaceful scientific investigation. Nobody can claim Antarctica or any piece of it as theirs, there are a lot of environmental protection measures in place, and it's dedicated to the pursuit of science. This same sort of framework was adopted with the Outer Space Treaty as well, but it's not quite as robust and it's not specific to the needs of space exploration or space colonization. At the basic level, nobody's allowed to claim any space territory or resources for themselves, so it would appear that any sort of asteroid mining activity is currently prohibited. The treaty states that exploration should be for the benefit and interests of all countries and all of humanity no weapons of mass destruction are allowed in space and space should be used for peaceful purposes only there's also a mandate here to avoid harmful contamination which clearly a city on mars might not be able to do it also states that nations are responsible for all space activities carried out by their citizens this this would mean that spacex would fall under the jurisdiction of the united states federal government for anything that it does in space including building a city on Mars. Seems like this means that if SpaceX builds a city on Mars that the United States is going to be responsible for that city according to international law. Now this outer space treaty also explicitly states that nobody can claim sovereignty over any part of outer space so establishing a city on Mars means it wouldn't belong to the United States though they would be responsible for it. The territory the city is on still belongs to everyone. So it does sound like this framework leaves a lot to be desired here. I mean, it seems SpaceX is free to go to Mars and do as they please, to be regulated and governed by the United States and in accordance with the treaty. Where things get strange here is that it seems undoubtable that somebody is going to try and claim some slice of Mars for themselves, or that a Mars settlement will inevitably declare independence from Earth, at which point I guess the Outer Space Treaty would no longer apply to them. I'm not sure if we have any basis here for any kind of interplanetary law. Now, it's an interesting question here to think about what SpaceX and Elon Musk might have in mind here. I mean, surely they have some lawyers that have thought about these various issues with this international treaty. Maybe they just decide that they're going to go forward and operate within this legal grey area. Or maybe at some point there will be some push to modernize this existing treaty and implement better international laws for dealing with space and for dealing with corporations in space. So this, to me, as well as the existential risk problems, points to a fundamental issue when it comes to colonizing Mars, that we are not yet wise enough to do so responsibly. We haven't even really considered the possibility of contamination or, of harming life that might already exist on Mars. Before we build a city, we should first conduct a thorough survey of the planet and account for the status of its current biosphere if it has one. And if we do indeed find life on Mars, then maybe the smartest thing we could do would be to label the entire planet a scientific preserve like we've done with Antarctica, ban the development of cities and industry and certain other activities, and solidify Mars as a science-only zone that scientists go to and then eventually leave. Now there are two dimensions to this, and the first is a scientific dimension. We want to protect our ability to conduct science in the future without contaminating existing Martian life if it does exist. And the other dimension here is ethical. If Mars already hosts life, then maybe it's not our place to interfere with it and sort of mess it up. The smart way to go about things would be to address and minimize existential risks here on Earth as well as possible, to secure our long-term future. If we can address all of the most serious risks that we face and minimize them, then it's very unlikely that we'd go extinct from any other thing that might happen. And addressing these risks is going to require a lot of cooperation, a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge, and a lot of patience we're still sort of juveniles in this regard, our systems of governance don't utilize reason and long-term thinking to the level that we need them to. At this point in our history and our development, going forward and establishing a city on Mars is reckless, especially if it's just one company or one person at the helm of a company that's leading the charge. So at the end of the day, we do have some conflicting viewpoints here, On the one hand, technologists like Elon Musk say it's super important that we become a multi-planetary species so as to ensure our long-term survival. On the other hand, there are detractors that say that spending all of this energy and resources on going to Mars is, in a way, like giving up on our home planet. It's admitting that issues here on Earth are too hopeless or too complex or, at worst, not worth addressing at all. It's saying that building a city on Mars is a greater public good than using those same resources to try and alleviate poverty here on Earth. Now, I would say that there are problems with both views here. First, becoming multiplanetary isn't going to save us. There will always be another emergency that threatens humanity with extinction. The problem we face here isn't so much that we're currently contained on one planet with all of our eggs in one basket, it's rather that we're prone to mismanagement and poor decision making when it comes to humanity's long-term future. Here, Elon Musk is trying to address this by offering us a path forward. He beckons us to expand outward, to build and secure the future that we're entitled to, I guess you could say. And if we're being super optimistic about this approach, we could say that building a city on Mars is likely to be inspirational to a new generation of humans coming up. And we shouldn't underestimate how impactful inspiration can be. But then also the idea that we should sit back instead, just sit back on Earth and not invest in expanding into space until we've solved our Earth-based problems, this idea is also flawed. If we're going to take this approach, then we shouldn't Shouldn't we also say that we should stop all new infrastructure projects in the developed world until we've built essential infrastructure in the developing world? I mean, how can we justify bringing on a new power plant in North America to meet an already excessive demand for energy when there are still hundreds of millions of people living without electricity at all? The implication here is a bit preposterous. It's like saying that if you have a house that's falling apart, you shouldn't carry out any repairs or renovations on your house until you've used those resources to make sure that everyone else has a house first. But maybe we should do both. Maybe we should try to renovate our home that is falling apart and also seek to build new homes elsewhere. On that note, we should expand to space and help the world's poor while we do it. We might call this ambition. But heck, a large part of life is lived with ambition. If we decide that two things are important to pursue, well then we should do them both. We shouldn't necessarily be forced to choose one or the other. Just because we are looking to expand to Mars and build a city there, that doesn't mean we can't also uplift people on Earth and make the Earth a better place to live at the exact same time. The thing I worry about most is that we're not sufficiently prepared. Not just when it comes to capabilities and technology. I mean, SpaceX and Elon Musk are telling us that we have the technology and we have the capability. At this point, to them, it's just a matter of having the will. But I would contend that we also need to think about the philosophical elements here. We need to think about the implications for humanity, not just in terms of our long-term survival, but also in terms of what it means to be human and what our long-term goals as a human civilization are. We can't focus entirely on the future and ignore the problems of the present, but at the same time, we can't hyper-focus on the present and forsake our future. We really do need to do both. As for me, I'm really not sure whether or not we're prepared for this undertaking, whether we'll be able to see it through, but I guess time will tell. And with that, I want to thank everyone for being here, thank you for listening, and I will see everyone on the next one.